Hello, and welcome to Dispatch Live. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Uh, I'm Declan Garvey, and I'm joined by David French and uh, making her Dispatch Live debut, Esther Eaton, the uh, the deputy editor of The Morning Dispatch. Um, and we'll be joined by Andrew Egger a little later in the hour to discuss the midterms. Um, but first, we've got some pretty consequential geopolitical news to, to talk about in Ukraine and China. Uh, and of course, we'll uh, we'll save some time for member questions at the end. So does that uh, does that sound good to everybody? Absolutely. And Esther needs no introduction. She has been in everyone's inboxes for day after day uh, ever since she joined us. So this is this is great. This is great. To get, this is yeah. long, long overdue. Glad to yeah. uh, glad to have you make your debut. Um so we can uh, we can kick things off with with Ukraine, uh, David. You called in tonight's French press the most important story in the world. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that makes it makes sense to uh, be where we start. Um, yeah. So over the weekend, Russian Defense Minister uh, I'm going to butcher this Sergei Shoigu um, <laughs> called defense leaders uh, from several NATO countries, including the United States uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, to warned that Ukrainian forces are planning to detonate a radioactive dirty bomb in in Ukraine. Um, And the West has generally interpreted that to mean, you know, (laughs) oh, geez, the Russians are planning to detonate a radioactive dirty bomb. (laughs) Um, The Kremlin doubled down on that yesterday. President Biden today said he would quote, or it would be, quote, an incredibly serious mistake for Putin to go through with what they see as kind of a pretext for uh, escalation here. So I'll, I'll start with you, David. I appreciated how you've covered this kind of uh, in, in the French press, staying away from the day-to-day developments and focusing on bigger picture trends. When you wrote about it in August, you said the tide was turning in Ukraine's favor. Uh, is it turning again? How How perilous a moment do you think we're in right now? Yeah. I mean, right now, Ukraine still has the battlefield momentum. And while I don't think anyone should expect in the short term the kinds of gains we saw in their Kharkiv offensive, that their surprise Kharkiv offensive, uh, there's a lot of indications that they may be uh, closer to taking Kherson. The Russians, very importantly, don't seem to have any real prospect for reversing. Now, they might be able to slow or stop this uh, Ukrainian offensive at some point, but uh, for reversing it. They don't seem to really have uh, any immediate prospects of reversing it. Uh, I have not talked to any single military expert who's in the know who believes that throwing a couple hundred thousand poorly trained conscripts into the battle, into a modern battlefield, is going to be enough to reverse the tide. Again, can you put enough bodies in front of the Ukrainians to slow them down? Yeah, uh, you can. But can you reverse it with this force structure? There's a lot of people are saying no, no real short to medium term prospect for a Russian military, outright Russian military victory. So what do what do they do? What what are their hopes? And to understand what's happening, um, you have to understand that Ukrainian military success depends on two things. One, Ukrainian valor. Without that. We're nowhere. I don't care how many weapons you send to them without the the courage, the tenacity that they've shown, the strategic acumen that they've shown, we're nowhere 
as we saw in Afghanistan, you can pour American weapons into an ally. And if the ally isn't capable of using them effectively, you're nowhere. But at the same time, they need our weapons. This is not a country with its own indigenous manufacturing, a weapons manufacturing capability on anything like the scale necessary to take on a great power. They have to have our weapons. And so if you're Vladimir Putin, what do you do? If you can't take on Ukraine under the battlefield under current conditions, you try to adjust current conditions. And how are you going to try to adjust current conditions? Well, one way is you're going to try to choke off aid to Ukraine. And one way to try to choke off aid to Ukraine is to frighten Ukraine's allies into backing away. So I think that's the key of what's happening. A dirty bomb, to be clear, is not a nuclear bomb. As as I wrote in my uh, newsletter, I shared Tom Nichols' description of it as a radiological dispersal device. It's a device. It's a conventional explosive wrapped around a lot of radioactive material designed to essentially poison an area with radioactive material. So the thinking is a false flag dirty bomb would be a pretext for massive Russian escalation. And all of this is all designed to sort of tell the Western world to buzz off, to to, uh, stop supplying Ukraine, which is the only way you can see over the shorter medium term that Russia can reverse the the fortunes of war. So what I wrote in my newsletter is given this reality that um, Ukraine is has battleful momentum, Russia has no real way of reversing it, absent extraordinary measures, that the goal is to both continue supporting Ukraine and to deter Russian nuclear use. We have to do both because obviously if you don't deter Russian nuclear use, that's a catastrophe. And then if you don't support Ukraine any longer because of nuclear blackmail, What you're doing is you're then saying that every nuclear power in the world has a sort of de facto right of aggression that they can strike with impunity. And when the battlefield turns against them, they can threaten nuclear use, preserve or extend their gains. So that's intolerable. So it's a very, very, very difficult situation. But that's those are the basic parameters of where we are. It is scary. (laughs) Um, You know, it. to to kind of get a sense of the the stakes here, you touched on a little bit there, David. But um, you know, Esther, could you talk a little bit about for for people like me who uh, who don't know exactly the difference between a dirty bomb and a tactical nuke, and kind of what what that actually looks like in terms of how they're deployed on the battlefield, what it could do to a, a Ukrainian city, kind of um, you know why it would be different than the the rocket strikes that Ukrainians have unfortunately become used to over the past several months. Yeah. I I think it's it's useful to make that distinction because when you hear dirty bomb you're thinking about this radioactive fallout um and so they can sound similar but it is a big difference because it is it's conventional explosives not you know um this nuclear explosion that's happening and so the scale of destruction is going to be different. If you're talking about a nuclear weapon you're talking about weapons that can potentially you know level whole cities um depending on the size. Whereas if you're talking about a dirty bomb, it's going to be more on the order of blocks um, of a city that would be destroyed. And similarly, the area of this radioactive damage is also going to be smaller, um, as is the severity. So if, you know, a dirty bomb gets detonated, you're not going to want to hang around in that area, but it's likely that you're not going to be instantly 
falling ill with, you know, radiation sickness. Um, it's going to be more of an exposure over time. It's sort of like how you don't want to sit in an x-ray chair for years on end. Um, but one x-ray isn't going to kill you. Um, so, so that's what we're talking about. Like it's still potentially a horrific scenario, but it's not going to wipe a city off the map. Um, and, and that I think is, is part of why we haven't seen dirty bombs get used before. They're sort of thought of as a weapon of terrorists, not of nation states. And that's because they are a weapon of fear as opposed to a real sort of, um, I don't know, tactical battlefield advantage device. Right, right. Can, and, I, can I add to that a little bit? Yeah. It's similar to chemical weapons in that regard. So. Mm. Um, one of the reasons why chemical weapons weren't haven't been used all that often in war, although they have been used somewhat, is their their area effect weapons that are that are not necessarily all that militarily effective. They're terrifying. They're deadly to unprotected civilian pop populations. But as far as like being able to turn the tide of the battlefield, um, you know, aside from their first surprise use early in World War One, they were a, a kind of a net zero on that. So um, they don't have the capacity to adjust the dynamics on the battlefield as much as, in, say, an actual nuke does or, mm -hmm. you know, more conventional weapons. But, yeah, they're they're terror. A, a, a dirty bomb is a terror weapon is a great way to describe it. Yeah. And in, in terms of actual nukes that we got, you know, we've seen some reporting there's. A couple different outlets they might be citing the same anonymous u.s defense official but have we've seen reports of there being quote troubling developments um on the nuclear front with within russia whether that's you know moving certain warheads that would uh raise alarms or you know readying certain positions that that would need to be uh active to to launch one of these things you know it's not it's not entirely clear these are anonymous officials that <laughs> say we can't give you any more details but we see these these uh troubling developments so david what what could a troubling development be uh and and how does that tie into what this what this dirty bomb this pretext could could look like so number one take that with a big grain of salt okay um I would say if we actually saw something that looked like warheads being moved from storage facilities into into a deployable posture, when I say deployable, essentially fireable posture, um, you would expect to see. There's a lot that um, there's a lot that you would start to expect to see, even if if officials were not talking. You might expect to see a flurry of American military movements that are highly unusual. You might expect to see a lot of briefings on Capitol Hill that are people are, are very tight-lipped, grim-faced, tight-lipped kind of briefings, the sort of nervous energy that accompanies and that that accompanies any sort of potential momentous development. Um so from a from a sort of a Washington standpoint. It would, and from and and from the standpoint of military movements, it would be very hard to disguise actual American alarm at intelligence indicating imminent or possible, uh, or 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 highly possible nuclear use. That being said, there are signs. Um, you know, look, whenever you're talking about an opposing military's nuclear. Um, forces, there's a lot you're not going to know because this is going to be among the most highly classified weapon systems that they have. And of course, our intelligence services aren't telling reporters everything they know. 
but from what I understand, the Russians don't actually have a large amount number or even a significant number at all of tactical tactical nuclear weapons that are ready for immediate use. Their strategic weapons, in other words, like the submarine launch missiles, their strategic missiles, their ICBMs, are capable of immediate use. But the tactical nuclear weapons, by and large, are stored. Mm-hmm. And so the hope, the thinking, is that we would be able to see and have some warning that Russia was moving towards a posture of potential immediate use. That would be the hope. Um, and the thought is that we would be able to see that and then respond either through overt troop movements or what movements of ships of at military assets to try to deter that, or there could be some back channels or, uh, or, or direct messages to the Putin administration, Putin regime <laughs> to try to deter uh, but again, a lot of that depends on our ability, our confidence that we can figure out when Russia is actually moving warheads into a deployable, fireable position. And I'm not 100% confident <laughs> that we're, we're able to do that. Uh, I'm not 100%. I've not talked to anybody who says we're 100% confident we're able to discern if that if that is happening. That's an encouraging note. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we should, if someone said we're 100% confident we're yes. going to be, you shouldn't believe that. I mean, this is, yes. yeah, anyway. No, that is that is fair. Um, I want to get to some uh, viewer questions. We've got a couple coming in already uh, and feel free to continue to send them in the chat. Um, but this one is from Ed Kless and it's, it's basically gaming out what could you know, potentially become a very real scenario in the next couple of days or weeks. So what if a dirty bomb is detonated in Ukraine and Russia blames Ukraine? What can the United States do? What can Ukraine do? Uh, Esther, we can go to you first on that and then circle back. Yeah, well, first, the West is already sort of, I mean, obviously already sort of preparing for that by saying this is not credible uh, Ukraine is not there. We have no indication that Ukraine is preparing to do this. So they're certainly laying the groundwork to very quickly shut down Russia's continuing accusations. And it, Ukraine has been helpful with that by saying, you know, we already are our, our nuclear facilities are already subject to inspections. But, you know, come on in for some more. Um, we want to be clear that we're not doing this. So there's already a concerted effort to sort of discredit these accusations. And you know, for the record, it's not like Russia hasn't claimed that um, various adversaries are going to set off uh, dirty bombs before, including Ukraine. They've been mentioning this on and off for months. So this isn't a, a new tactic for Russia. Um, so that's the the first step in terms of um, responses to a weapon being actually fired. I'll shoot it to David on, you know, what uh, sort of military responses there would be, um, because I think right now, you know, the messaging we're seeing is mostly focused on deterring them from doing it in the first place, and then making it very clear that it would be Russia, not Ukraine. Right. And David, I'll I'll kick it to you in a second. But just like this is a almost a verbatim repeat of everything we saw Russia do and everything we saw the United States do in response uh, nine months ago when, you know, when Russia was building up forces along the border with Ukraine and started, you know, doing their saber rattling about we think we think Ukraine's about to start uh, launching rockets on you know X Y Z uh, places in in the the Donbas region. You know we 
Ukraine's about to attack uh, Russian Russian speaking natives who align with Russia. Uh, this is all going to happen. And the United States time and time and time again was saying, no, here's what our intelligence says. We're going to publish all of this, be as transparent as possible and and say, you know, if if the United States can outline with some degree of, of accuracy what is about to happen and say this is Russia is doing this, um, that's helpful in, in defining the narrative and kind of making clear what is and what is not an act of aggression here and who's behind it. Um, so I think the Biden administration had success doing that in the, um, you know, in the lead up to the war, obviously it did not stop Russia's invasion, but it really was helpful in getting, rallying the world to Ukraine's side, kind of removing any ambiguity over what was happening here, who was uh, deciding to invade, what the, what the uh, impetus for the aggression was. And so um, I think the Biden administration is trying to do the same thing with, with this dirty bomb talk and, and releasing intelligence. And um, so we shall see if, if that keeps up, but David go, go for it on, uh, on Esther's question about military response. Let's just go from grim to grimmer. Okay. So if a dirty bomb is detonated, God forbid, um, I'm skeptical that it will be, I, you know, I, I would, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, Russia, as as Esther indicated, as De, as Declan, as you've indicated, Russia has sort of saber rattled about potential Ukrainian escalation before that was totally fabricated and nothing came of it. But um, let's suppose, let's just go there. Let's suppose a dirty bomb goes off in Ukraine. God forbid, we should immediately treat that as something equivalent to a nuclear war warning. In other words. Not that we're going to engage in a nuclear fashion, but that that is that should indicate potential imminent Russian nuclear use uh, is, I think, the way we should treat that. If they're going to go that far as to detonate a terror weapon and blame it on Ukraine, that is a pretext for something, right? That is a pretext for something huge. And at this point, this idea that they could detonate a dirty bomb and then try to use that as a pre as to say see look ukraine is horrible you should cut off aid that's absurd no one's buying this no one's buying this so but a dirty bomb goes off this i would say is for domestic audiences domestic russian audiences americans aren't going to go oh gee ukraine's horrible they're going to know what this is so i think it would be treated as essentially a nuclear war warning at which point the 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 Biden administration, and not just the Biden administration, but the United Kingdom, France, all of the nuclear armed and highly capable NATO militaries at this point should, with one voice, say to Russia, nuclear use is 100% red line, totally unacceptable. Now, if that is accompanied with and if that is accompanied with the kinds of naval movements or movements of air assets to indicate that Russia could face a devastating conventional response if it uses nuclear weapons, um, you know, that might be prudent. But at that point, we would have to treat nuclear use as potentially imminent if a dirty bomb detonates. And at that point, the imperative of deterrence, I mean, there's already a deterrence imperative, but the urgent imperative of deterrence really escalates um, because we should look at it as a failure of policy, even though it's totally in Putin's hands, whether he uses these things, it's a failure if he uses them. 
Yeah. If he yeah. actually uses nuclear weapons, there's a failure of deterrence by definition. And then you would have to think about, well, what is the response? But as of the urgent reality now would be deterrence. And if a dirty bomb detonates, that is a warning of an imminent failure of deterrence. So it's a warning of imminent nuclear use. And it could be the greatest crisis uh, in world history since the, you know, Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939. I want to circle back to one thing you said there, David, uh, and then we can move on to our next topic. But uh, you said that Americans are without a doubt going to take Ukraine's side, believe Ukraine, if if this does go um go out as as we are worrying that it might with the, with I know the, where this is going. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, you do. I think for <laughs> the the vast majority of Americans, that is the correct uh take. We've seen some somewhat high profile instances of that uh a diversion from that in recent weeks uh in Congress. I I want to be precise with with what so I'm speaking of um some very far left members of Congress uh this week releasing a letter to the Biden administration, which they since retracted, saying basically that um, the United States should adjust its posture towards Ukraine, try to aim towards negotiating peace and and not, um, you know, continuing to arm Ukraine to the hilt and and, and kind of just rethinking the general approach. On the Republican side, um, we saw Kevin McCarthy uh, in an interview with, I think, Punchbowl News saying that if Republicans take back the um, the House and, and Senate next year, there's not going to be, quote, an, a blank check for Ukraine anymore. And and he's kind of clarified that to be, you know, it, a blank check doesn't mean no check. It just means that it's going to be right. tied to oversight and more um, scrutiny and, and pro- maybe probably less stuff for civil society and and funding the Russian or the Ukrainian government than, than the Democrats have put in uh, thus, or I should say on a bipartisan basis, Congress has put in thus far. Um, but it does hint at um, kind of on, on both in both parties, there is a faction of supporters uh, of, that are not gung ho about the United States kind of unreserved support for Ukraine and, and all in in favor of doing what we've been doing. And I think that we're overextending ourselves. We're getting involved in a conflict, even though there's no for all we know, there's no United States boots on the ground. Um, this is all military and monetary support. Um, but. Do you think that there is kind of we're running out on fumes in terms of kind of the general United States approach to to this? Do you think that the United States is running out of the will to to support Ukraine on this? And and this can be for for both of you. I think the consensus for support still exists. And if there's a dirty bomb detonated, that consensus would be. Um, re- there would let me put it this way, if they de- if the Russians detonate a dirty bomb, a lot of the waverers will come back home to Ukraine. In, in my view. But if you want to talk about political malpractice, look, I have beat up on the 57 Republicans who voted against Ukraine aid. I have beat up on the Heritage Foundation and Tucker Carlson. I have and the, the McCarthy statement. Uh, a lot of people said it means they're going to cut off. I think that blank check language was sort of like a it was sort of a nobody's nobody's given Ukraine a blank check now. But anyway, um, I have absolutely taken on the new right and for its wavering on Ukraine or its opposition to Ukraine aid. But can I say something about the progressive caucus? You may. If if you want to talk about all time 
incompetence on both a political and strategic level. Oh my gosh. So if I have, I know Republicans who are even now like, wait, what's going on with the GOP? Why are the Democrats stronger on Ukraine than the Republicans? Why are the Republicans softer on Russian aggression as a party than the Democrats? What is going on? And then here comes 30 House Democrats just muddying the waters. And and if you read the letter, the letter was incoherent nonsense. I mean, it was just gobbledygook. So it's political malpractice right there. Then you add to that, oh, great timing, guys. Russia is threatening, you know, is is raising this dirty bomb false flag uh, right at the time where it's, because it's trying to intimidate the West out of supporting Ukraine. And right a day after Russia raises the dirty bomb issue, you release a letter signed by 30 House members. What? I mean, at the worst possible time, it, it boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind. And then, but I will say, they pulled back really fast. <laughs> they pulled back so fast, which good, you know, we live in an era of people doing awful, terrible, stupid, horrible things, and then just not apologizing because that's backing down. So good on them for pulling back, but good grief. Okay. I'm yeah. Just, <laughs> okay. Esther, be nicer than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I may not be as passionate on the point as you are. Um, <laughs> but I yeah, I would say even the two things that you brought up, Declan, are significant, you know, this letter and McCarthy's statement. But what you also mentioned is that both of them were sort of walked back or def- defined a little differently or just sort of, you know, muddied up. Um and and neither of these things were saying we should just abandon Ukraine entirely and you know, I love Russia. Um, so I think, you know, yes, it's, it's concerning and we should continue to watch for signs of weakening support. Uh, but even the fact that, you know, this letter was so quickly retracted says to me that there is still, as David put it, this, a strong base of support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, strawberry banana right, well, smoothie. The, uh, that's very nice, David. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we, we got to move on, unfortunately, to, uh, I think this was a important that we spent the amount of time on Ukraine that we did, but we've got three other topics and Andrew waiting in the wings for us to let him in to talk about midterms, but we got to hold him off a little bit longer to do China. Before we do that, we got a question from Matthew Germer. Um, without Esther giving her background, he's going to assume that based on her accent, she's from the upper Midwest. Esther, is that correct? And I know the answer, but (laughs) (laughs) it is not correct. Although I will say, you know, points to him. That's where my parents are from uh, Mm. somewhat. But I am from Maine, the great state of Maine, technically the most rural state in the union. Uh, Yep. And I love to talk about it, but I'll stop myself there. (laughs) (laughs) So when does Uh, it get dark in Portland, Maine in the winter? Listen, Everybody you meet in Maine is taking vitamin D and has a sad lamp for their seasonal depression. So that's, yeah, that's maybe the one. Three in the afternoon, three 30 in the afternoon. Is it around there? I don't even, I don't even know. Um, yeah. Confession. I haven't been back in a couple of years, but Mm -hmm. it's early. Yeah. It's painfully early. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's rough. Okay. That was my question. Good question. 
Um, <laughs> I, I've got a, I've got a seasonal lamp shining on my face right now. It's good, good lighting for podcast this patch live, I do too. Um, yep. <laughs> but, uh, moving to China, the other, uh, major geopolitical news we've got this week. There's a couple different stories here that we can dive into and we'll do it quickly just for, for time's sake. But, um, you know, we, we've got to start the, uh, party Congress. This is a twice a decade event every five years, uh, where, bunch of Chinese Communist Party bigwigs get together and decide how they're going to run the country for the next five years and who's going to run the country for the next five years. Um, and importantly, this time around, and this, we've covered it, uh, and I should say Esther's covered it uh, very in depth the past couple of weeks, is uh, unique for the reason that Xi Jinping is getting um, what is for in, in modern Chinese history, an unprecedented third term um, as the leader of, of the Chinese Communist Party, and he's basically remade the the CCP in his image, um, going all in on the Xi model uh, for the, at least the next five years, and presumably if for the next five years also for life, um, the, as we've kind of seen his consolidation of power. So, um, Esther, I'll kick it to you. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what happened in Beijing this week and kind of uh, what the, the most important takeaways should be? Yeah. So like you said, um, it is an unprecedented third term in modern history, but it's super not an unexpected third term. So nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but most everybody uh, saw this party Congress coming and fully expected Xi to walk out on top as he did. But what, you know, was maybe a little surprising was just how thoroughly he sort of swept the field of the upper echelons of um, Chinese power. So when the new the it's called the standing committee and it's got seven members right now when the new membership was introduced sunday um it was g and a bunch of allies and supporters people who've worked for him people who um you know write his ideology for consumption by the masses um people who you know owe their political power right now to him and are going to be pretty loyal um and and that was you know, again, not shocking. He's been consolidating power for a while, but a little bit surprising. Previously, that standing committee had some members who were a little more pragmatic on the economy. They were a little more willing to let markets, you know, be a little more free and unleash some economic power in that way. But Xi is <laughs> is is more ideologically driven in his approach to the economy. Um, and so those people are out. Some of them weren't at retirement age yet, so they were kind of pushed out a little early. Um, and his allies are in. And, and so the implications of that are, you know, many. But on the economic side specifically, the markets hated this news. Um, uh, a, a tech market in Hong Kong or uh, uh, index dropped, um, I want to say like 6%. And some major tech companies um, that are based in China lost like 11% of their share price immediately. Um, and that's just because they know what's coming, which is that he's not going to decide, you know what, guys, I was wrong. And, you know, let's let free enterprise run rampant. Um He's going to continue more political oversight, more central management of the economy. And, you know, from what we've seen in the last couple of years, that's really not a great sign for China's economy. Um, so, for instance, another significant thing was that the Shanghai party secretary, who is responsible for, you know, the much criticized lockdowns that, um, again, sort of shaved a few percentage points off China's uh, growth, 
he got a big promotion and he's expected to be made premier in March, which is kind of second in command. So that's really a vote of confidence from G, first of all. Um, and it's just another vote of support from him for this zero COVID policy. It's another indication that we're not going to see that loosening up anytime soon. And what that means is these extreme lockdowns that are damaging to manufacturing, to, I mean, restaurants and all of that, um, that just have a big effect on China's economy. And 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 its economy is already facing some big structural problems, um, like their dropping birth rate um, and really skyrocketing debt. I mean, China is at around 275% of GDP in debt, and that's government debt and private debt, household debt. Um but that's a that's a huge amount that that can be destabilizing. And you know, what analysts are saying is he needs to make some reforms and loosen up the market if they're really going to turn that around. And we just don't see that happening. And so that's why the markets had a big old negative reaction to that new lineup of that standing committee. David, I want to I'll pose to you the question that we posed to readers of the Morning Dispatch this morning, um, and then we'll move on to the midterms because Andrew is <laughs> banging down the door ready to talk about <laughs> Arizona. Um, I like to think of him just like off screen somewhere in the metaverse, <laughs> uh, really frustrated that he's locked out of the Zoom. Um, but so we asked members this morning in, in TMD, sign up and, and subscribe to get it in your inbox every day. Uh does this news out of the party Congress, does Xi's um, solidifying his hold on power make you more or less um, worried about the geopolitical competition with China over the coming years? Do you think China is going to be stronger because of this or are they weakening themselves? I think China is weakening, weakening themselves and that makes me worried. Uh, <laughs> Explain. <laughs> so, uh, look, I think... As Esther said very well, zero COVID has been uh, a a disastrous policy economically. It, it's a policy that is uh, ratcheting up the level of oppression in China beyond even its oppressive norms. Uh, China has a declining birth rate. It has a demographic problem. Uh, so it's going to be looking at some slowing economic growth. It's going to be looking at um, an aging population None of these things say that China is inexorably going to be an economic and military colossus. What that says to me is China might be looking at if it's wanting to let, and I think sort of front of mind about Taiwan, that if China is thinking about a move to Taiwan, it may be looking in terms of a window of opportunity more so than sort of an inevitable future ascendancy. So those are th that's what makes me a, a little bit nervous. And if you have situations where China is, you know, is has a with zero COVID, with declining growth, maybe a population that is not as in lockstep behind its leadership. I mean, it's a time-honored method of autocratic uh of autocratic governments to precipitate a foreign crisis to rally patriotism at the, on the home front. I mean, the the modern sort of paradigm of that was the Argentine junta that launched the invasion of the Falkland Islands in the you know in in the early 1980s. So I'm worried that Chinese vulnerability is actually going to be dangerous in the short to medium term. Um, I am much less worried about Chinese sort of strategic slash military slash economic ascendancy over the long term. 
I'm actually much more bullish on the United States of America if we can sort of stop hating each other so much um, that our ability to grow through immigration, for example, our ability to achieve technical innovation, our ability to maintain a military edge, I have much more confidence in us than I do in China. But I also feel like China is in a position where it might feel strong enough to move on Taiwan in the relatively near future and that that's its window. Um, so it makes me a little worried. And when are we going to get to the the good news part of this dispatch live? Like the, Which is? The, I don't know. Is there one? <laughs> oh, is there uh, one? you know, let's let's find out. Andrew, <laughs> unveil yourself. Reveal yourself to the viewers. There uh, he is. There's Hello. the liquor store. You, you there's the liquor store. Can you, you hear me? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Depends what you're looking for, Declan. Uh, the good news is that my webcam turned on, which sometimes doesn't happen. So I wasn't 100 percent sure what to expect coming in, coming in, you know, midstream like this. But uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Um, well, we've already talked about Ukraine and China. Um, you are we're in another foreign land of Arizona uh, this past nice. weekend. That was, thank you very much. Um, and you you were chatting me about it that um, you were surprised by um, the political chops of of Carrie Lake when when you were out there that you you saw some of her events not necessarily her stances and and you know what what have you but her ability to connect with voters her ability to kind of command a stage and her presence and interact with reporters um, I'm curious to to hear more about that what. So so yes, I super want to talk about Arizona in as much detail as you want to, but I do want maybe even before we do that to break in with a little bit of dispatch live uh, breaking news. It's not really breaking news, um, but we are, we're all, I think everybody on this call maybe has like one eye pointed at the webcam and another eye on like a Twitter feed, um, kind of keeping tabs on how the Mehmet Oz, John Fetterman debate is going right now in, in real time. I don't. Pennsylvania. Well, I have been. I mean, I haven't, you know, I wasn't having to participate. I wasn't having to like look, you know, I, the camera was off. I was like kind of mainlining, mainlining. It's it's apparently we all know about John Fetterman, right? I mean, he's he's in this kind of unprecedented situation where he's battling back from a stroke that he suffered on the cusp of winning the Democratic primary. He had this stroke at kind of the last possible moment before he was kind of locked in as uh the candidate. And it's been kind of like an awkward uh you know, obviously kind of grueling um, rehabilitation process for him. He's on stage right now uh, debating with 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 Dr. Oz. And it's uh, by basically every indication is just having a very difficult time, um, you know, with the with the formatting and his campaign kind of tried to uh, set expectations pretty low, basically saying he's going to be reading off of closed captioning. Um, the closed captioning, are, the people are going to be typing up the moderator's questions for him in real time. So there's going to be like kind of a, a jerky disconnect to that. And then he's ha he has these kind of auditory processing issues that make it kind of hard for him to speak extemporaneously. Even all that being said, I mean, it's just been uh, people kind of watching the debate are just kind of like, yikes. Um, it's, he's just really kind of struggling and hacking away out there. And, and it's, and it's hard kind of as, as media people to know how to handle this because it is just scientifically true that the problems that Fetterman has are not um, mental. You know, he, he does not have difficulty with thoughts. He has difficulty with hearing and speech. So the question is like, should these things matter as a candidate? Um, at the same time, since the dawn of 
television, uh, it's just been kind of baked in that you have to be able to kind of get up and speak and, and, and kind of seem, uh, like you can handle yourself with authority. And, and so I, I don't know, I, I, there has not been a, a, a debate moment in this midterm cycle so far that was even really worth, uh, writing home about the next day. Like, I don't think we've even covered them. Many of these debates hardly at all in, in TMD or whatever, um, even in the sweep. But, uh, but I think this one, optically it's been, it's been kind of brutal for, for John Fetterman. So that's, I just wanted to say that off the, uh, but, but before it is, it's in the process of being brutal uh, for John Fetterman. So I don't know if you guys want to talk about that at all, or we can go straight to the Arizona thing, but I wanted to knock that out. Yeah, no, I mean, um, as Esther, uh, what are your thoughts on the yesterday, the Fetterman campaign put out a statement essentially like doing everything that they possibly could to lower expectations for tonight. Um, I think they had avoided wanting to do a, a debate at all, um, but they kind of realized that um, that that's going to raise more questions in voters' minds than than uh, potentially it it would have answered. Um, and maybe as they're seeing tonight, it, the, the right call would have been just to say, no, we're not doing a debate. It's not the right venue for him. It, I haven't watched it yet, so we can see um, you know how how he fared. Um, but in essentially going out there yesterday and saying, you know, this is not John Fetterman's strong suit. He's you know, this is not why you're going to elect him is because he's good at debates. He's not necessarily going to crush this. Do you think that that's enough for voters to kind of lower the expectations so that they went into it knowing or expecting kind of what we're seeing tonight? Or do you think that um, this is really going to hurt him vis-a-vis uh, -vis Oz? I mean, I read that statement from his press team, you know, begging us not to take this too much to heart, but how many other people did? Um you know, I mean, I'm not a Pennsylvania voter, so maybe they are all reading his press team's uh, sure. blurbs to journalists. But I got to feel like, you know, if you're turning on your TV and you're seeing this debate and you're not up on that particular aspect of it, if, if you're not up on the distinction of like the problem is auditory processing and speech, not mental acuity, then that's got to be pretty brutal to watch. I haven't seen the clip, so I, you know, I can't speak to exactly what's going down, but I can't imagine that that's going to have solved it. It it may, you know, I'm sure what they're hoping is that the reporters watching this and writing about it will frame it that way um, and help in that regard. Um, but it kind of makes me think of, you know, constantly we have clips of Joe Biden going viral, stumbling over words. And there's always, you know, this sort of debate of, you know, Joe Biden has a speech impediment and he has for a long time. Um but there are also all these, you know, questions or claims about his declining mental sharpness. And so it's sort of a similar, like, I don't know about John Fetterman's debate chops, um, but it seems to me that this is going to, this is, this is not going to be good, that clips are going to be able to float around without that context. And can I just raise a question? If somebody has sort of has real problems communicating, it's possible that it's certainly and there certainly there are people who have real problems uh, processing auditory, you know, processing words and speaking who are very sharp mentally. That is true. That exists. Are we supposed to take the campaign's word for it that that's what's going on? I mean, I think this is one thing that, right. you know, I've seen a lot of this um, commentary that's essentially like he's fine 
look, he has some problems, you know, lingering effects from the stroke, but he's sharp. Okay. I mean, we're going to just accept that. And I, and, and then, you know, there's the whole ableist stuff. Well, you're ableist if you're judging him for this. That's the, this is where Twitter is just so far divorced from real life. People are sniping back and forth on what it's okay to judge Fetterman on. In the meantime, people are going to judge him on what they're going to judge him on. And if he can't, you know, I've seen a couple of things just with one eye on, you know, some of these answers are brutal. I mean, they're brutal, just sad. Like it's sad to see. And is that a person that people are going to want to send to the Senate? And, um, uh, you know, it's really it's really sad to see this happen and then you know you don't even know at the end of the day you don't even know is this a situation where the person's really not fit to serve right I, you you just don't how do you know and right. it's, it's really sad I mean, we've had we we have examples of senators um who've recovered from strokes serving sure. in the, uh, mark mm -hmm. kirk in illinois uh, was pretty debilitated after his stroke and and um, ended up uh, retiring. I think at the when his term was up, um, Chris Van Hollen uh, is had a stroke. I think earlier this year, as did Ben Ray Lujan, um, but they both seem to have uh, recovered their their um, uh, kind of functional uh, their senses and and processing uh, more than Fetterman has at least to date. Uh, Sarah has been giving us live updates in slack which is helpful um that the rnc is not sending clips of the debate around yet um they're just kind of fact checking based on the transcript of fetterman those are i mean those are going to go around i mean they're gonna right like oz's campaign has shown no restraint in in kind of how they've approached this they're willing to go after him on it um yeah. do you think that that will back or kind of rebound against Oz if they're seen as mocking him or how do you think they I don't think there's any way this plays in Fetterman's favor in kind of the media I mean like like I I think it's basically true as a political aphorism that if you're explaining you're losing um like they're already so on the back foot even just with the expectation setting and we we you know expect debate expectation setting is an age-old practice sometimes it even works we saw some of this in Georgia um Herschel yeah. Walker prior to the debate with with Raphael Warnock spent weeks his campaign basically saying, you know, uh, Warnock's a, a public speaker. He's a gifted orator. Herschel would say, like, I'm not that smart on the campaign trail, stuff like that. But the point of all of that is to then be able to get up on stage and exceed expectations. It's not to then be it's not to get up on stage and have it look brutal and then try mm -hmm. to convince people why they shouldn't care that it looked brutal. I mean, people uh, people trust the evidence of their eyes, even when that evidence can give a misleading picture, which is what we're talking it about can. with the yeah. with the auditory processing stuff. And you're absolutely right, David. Like the, the campaign has not always been fully honest. Even you know in the immediate aftermath of the stroke, they kind of really downplayed it until it became clear they weren't going to be able to do that. The flip side of that is that uh, he has released statements from his doctors, basically saying that they they do expect all of this stuff to be fully transitory, um, but. You know, tonight's the night when he's up under the bright lights, and uh, and I, I don't know what can you say that we haven't said. It isn't going very well. Yeah. So with with that, we'll we'll leave that be, and, and uh, once we all have actually seen the debate and can can talk more fluently on it, I'm sure we will be writing about this in the coming days. Um, I sympathize, by the way. Horror, like worst nightmare possible, like thing to imagine. Like 
Yeah. Like get like, you know, like the, the nightmares where you're like getting up on stage and realize you never learned your lines or taking a test without ha- ever having gone to the class. It's like, I mean, poor guy. Posting dispatch live without horrible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just horrible. Yeah. Um, but to, to, to move a little bit, uh, forward, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your Arizona reporting, Andrew, you were out there for how many days? Um, I was there for uh, four full days, which was uh, longer than that's actually the longest reporting trip I've taken this year. Uh, my wife was definitely ready to not be solo parenting by the end of it. So uh, sorry about that, Grace. I'll tell her again later. I told all <laughs> of you people that. Um, but yeah, I did events for uh, events for Carrie Lake, uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate, did events for uh, Blake Masters, who's running for Senate, uh, got a bonus appearance from Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham, who is a real odd duck. Um, who showed up uh, at an event Masters was at, and the Masters campaign didn't know he was coming, which was kind of funny, because um, he is way out there on the right in terms of all the Stop the Steal stuff and just kind of a real a real character. Um, but yeah, you are. I won't make you re- rephrase your question, because um, the, the first event that I saw uh, when I got out there last Wednesday, almost a week ago, was Carrie Lake, governor candidate, another real wild character, um, hardcore into Stop the Steal, all through the primary, has backed off that a little bit now, but, but basically real election fraud type, um, was very radical on COVID, um, continues to rabble rouse about, about the vaccines, which she describes as experimental, um, you know, all of that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, and j- basically just uh, a Trumpian character in, in basically every rhetorical way, loves to pick on the press, does the exact same thing where it's like, uh, everybody at the rally turn around and laugh at the people back there. You know, the cameras, they don't, they're not, I've never really understood this move. They're not covering it. Look at the cameras. Um, but anyway, so real, real Trumpian character in that respect, unbelievably sharp, like, like just, mm-hmm. she's been a local TV broadcaster for decades. Uh, and I think these parties got to start pillaging the newsrooms a little more. I mean, like, like in DC, there's always been like this, this pretty kind of stark divide where it's like if you're if you hop back and forth between journalism and and the the like campaign sphere it's like really frowned upon um but they know how to get up there and talk to the cameras and they know their good angles and they know how to modulate their voice into a microphone and i mean she's like she's very impressive in that way um she really can like can 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 say these truly wild insane things that like no candidate would have been saying a couple of years ago and make them and, and just kind of pitch them as though they are just kind of common sense, you know, um, it's, it's kind of, it's in, in a sense, very impressive and in a sense, kind of terrifying to, to behold. Um, and, uh, and she is significantly outpolling her opponent, um, out punching her opponent right now, uh, Katie Hobbs, who, uh, is the current secretary of state, a Democrat, um, won a lot of plaudits from liberals during the 2020 election for how she kind of handled all of that. But, uh, but has, really seen her reputation sour uh, among Democrats who are watching this state who are like, gosh, I really hope Carrie Lake doesn't become the governor. Uh, Katie Hobbs, how are you going to win this race and prevent that from happening? And she hasn't wanted to debate Carrie Lake and she hasn't really been visible out on the campaign trail and it's turning into a whole fiasco. Carrie Lake likely to win at this point. What is especially interesting about this is that this has been one of those uh, seats that we've seen, uh, one of these states that we've seen this cycle that looked like it could be like a rare ticket split sort of situation because um, Carrie Lake's been pulling up, but uh, but in the Senate race where you have uh, the Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, the former astronaut, kind of cool. Um, he's the incumbent. He's raised, you know, he's richer than Solomon. He has so much money. 
Um, <laughs> millions and millions, like $70 million he's spent this, this campaign cycle. And then in the other corner, you have Blake Masters, um, who's a first-time candidate, venture capital guy affiliated with Republican billionaire Peter Thiel, um, won his primary uh, in large part because Thiel dumped $15 million in. But Thiel has uh, given much less money uh, in the general election. He's put in about $5 million, or he's pledged about $5 million just in the last couple of weeks. Um, and then uh, Masters himself has raised and spent about $8 million uh, compared to the $60 million from Mark Kelly. So it's a little bit of an imbalance there. Uh, there's a bunch of weird idiosyncrasies to that race we can talk about if you guys feel like it. Um, but the, the bottom line is that Kelly has been polling above Masters pretty substantially for almost the entire race. But now in the closing days, it has really tightened. And I think that a lot of analysts are seeing, even though Masters is like playing more to the middle, like you would expect a general election candidate to do, um, like kind of trying to, to, to paint Mark Kelly as a fake moderate and say like he's the, you know, um, trying to go for those independent voters. It's Carrie Lake, the like fire-breathing MAGA lady, who is just such a good candidate that she is the one who is likelier to pull him across the finish line than vice versa. So it's just a very weird dynamic in the state. Can I rant about stupidity and incompetence for a moment? Wish you would. Um, it's coming. Arizona Democrats. I remember. I remember this. Here's NBC, uh, July 13th, 2022. Carrie Lake watched her lead narrow in the polls and big players in as big players in Arizona's Republican established coalesce around her top rivals before the state's August 2nd primary for governor. So Democrats stepped in. The state party in an email blast this week thanked her opponent, Karen Taylor Robson, for past donations she made to Democratic candidates. The move was quickly interpreted as another example of Democrats meddling in midterm election primaries to help draw the general election opponent believed to offer the easier matchup, in this case, Lake, an election denier endorsed by President Trump. Okay. Lake is a talented enough politician. She probably would have won the primary anyway. But what the heck are you doing? What the heck are you doing? I'm this is similar to the Peter Meyer situation. This is, I mean, we could go around the country with the millions of dollars that Democrats spent to try to get MAGA, hyper MAGA, ultra MAGA election deniers on the ballot so that they could definitely beat them. Well, you're not, doesn't look like at the moment you're beating Carrie Lake. Maybe you will, maybe you'll pull it out, but why, why play with fire like this? This is frustrating. It's infuriating. And, you know, I'm sorry, but it's it's hard if I completely agree. I'm the per I, I completely agree with the notion that when you elect election deniers, you're placing our republic under strain and potential risk. And but it's really hard to say you it is absolutely irresponsible for you to vote for this person. I tried to help when when beat their opponent in the primary. <laughs> what what on I earth? rant over not only could she win the gubernatorial race in arizona uh in two weeks but she's already being talked about as a vice presidential contender uh in 2024 or a presidential contender after that so andrew do you see that in in carrie lake's future uh is she only going to serve two years of her term because she's getting whisked off to washington so one absolutely could happen i mean like like 
it, it makes a lot of sense in a lot of different ways. I mean, like, like people like to game out that like the real smart thing to do would be for Trump to pick DeSantis, but like, I don't, I mean, Trump is already like knives out for DeSantis enough that that just seems really implausible. Carrie Lake's all the way across the country. Um, you know, a woman, uh, but like, like her and like him in, in many stylistic ways, it would be like a really strong pick. Let me, I told Esther about this yesterday because it's just like the, the most insane, uh, like angle to all of this is that uh, Arizona doesn't have a lieutenant governor position. There's isn't one. Um, so if uh, Carrie Lake were whisked away and to, to, to join the Republican ticket and resigned, uh, the person who would become governor would be whoever wins the secretary of state race, which, as I said before, the Republican candidate for that is is true maniac Mark Fincham. And I, and I, I don't know, like, how how to kind of parse out the differences between these two people. Um, because like they they both are just kind of pretty intense, like white knuckle holding to the election denial stuff. Um, but but like you see Carrie Lake speak and you're like, okay, this person is like a really qualified politician. And then you see Mark Fincham speak and he is just bizarre. I mean, he's like a cowboy hat, like mustache guy, but like very soft spoken and very kind of like homey, like, like, like kind of folksy, um, has no kind of like alpha, alpha Republican energy whatsoever. Um, and just sort of speaks in, I don't know, just, just, just not the idea that he would be the governor is extremely funny to me. Um, I don't, I don't know whether it would actually be like a grimmer prospect democracy wise than, than Carrie Lake in there. Um, but it would be, it would definitely make for a pretty good TV. Um, in a different way than Carrie Lake being. The uh, let's do a lightning round to wrap up here. We're almost out of time. This is a question from Matthew. He's got a contest at work and he needs help. Uh, what will be the partisan breakdown of the Senate next term? Let's just phrase it. Go around the room, uh, the virtual room. How many Senate seats will the Republicans have in January of 2023? Andrew, you go first. 52. 52. David? 51. Esther? At least seven. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna go with 52. (laughs) And by the way, shout out to Esther's mom, who I understand is watching. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I I told her to, you know. Okay. Yeah. That's exciting. My parents are watching as well, I think. Uh, (laughs) Hello to parents as well. Um, I will, I will also go 52. I think that, uh, we are likely to see a little bit more of a red wave than was anticipated the last couple weeks. Um, so a couple quick housekeeping things before we say sayonara for the, for the week. Um, we want to provide just a, a quick update on our new website. Uh, thank you to everybody who has let us know that, there were some bugs the first couple days with that. Uh, some some things that functionalities that we lost in the migration from Substack to the current website. Uh, we have restored a decent amount of them already. Um, I am told that uh, we will be restoring uh, substantially more in the coming days. Uh, so that is the ability to edit and delete comments, um, to collapse threads, sort comment threads, that kind of thing. Um, so keep an eye out for that. We'll keep you updated in TMD uh, in, in how you can access those features. Um, and then we also want to give a quick plug to um, or for our event in Chicago, uh, our regional meetup in uh, about two we- one week now, uh, November 3rd. Um, it will be uh, from 6 to 10 p.m. 
Central Time at the Midwest Coast Brewing Company in Chicago. So that's in the West Loop for, for those of you who know what that means. Um, I'm going to be there. Steve's going to be there. Sarah's going to be there. Uh, I believe my parents are going to be there. That's an exciting uh, development as well. Um, and it will be it, it will be a pretty relaxed event. We're we're planning to just kind of get people together, uh, meet each other, talk a little bit, probably about the midterms and and some other whatever else happens in the news in the next couple days. But uh, dispatch is covering drinks for the first hour and a half of the event, uh, and we are super excited to just uh, get out in the community, meet the people that uh, are reading us and and listening to us, and learn from you guys about, um, you know, what, what it is that you're looking for and, and, and how we can continue to kind of grow this community. So can I put in a plug for that event also? Yeah, so uh, yeah, you Steven, hosted the original one. Yeah, we hosted, Steve and I hosted the original. It was a blast. And I think everyone who was there had a great time. And a lot of the members really enjoyed meeting each other. Cause a lot of folks who've corresponded on, on in comments, met each other in, in real life. And there were, surprisingly few fisticuffs so um but it was no we had a blast it was a lot of fun so i'd really encourage you to come out and uh steve and i hung out and talked to people until the last person left so i'm not going to impose that on you declan um but it it was it was really enjoyable yeah. yeah great uh well with that thank you andrew esther david for joining uh and thank you everybody for watching dispatch live tonight um we went a little bit over but i don't think folks minded uh we will be back in some formulation next week same time and uh we will see you then all right we're